Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, if you're visiting with us, we go verse by verse through our Bible studies. We're in the book of Luke. Uh, we're actually in the book of Ezekiel, but we've been on a hiatus from Ezekiel for numerous reasons on Wednesday nights. And as uh, uh, Russ had mentioned in the announcements, this Wednesday night, part two uh, of stewardship or parenting stewardship from Pastor Joe Foch, and then we'll have part three uh, the week after. So that, if you're here this Wednesday night, you saw a great teaching on stewardship uh, as parents and just laying the right foundation. Then Joe will get into Pastor Joe will get into some of the. Um, the practical applications this week and the following. But we're in the book of Luke. This is a long chapter, chapter 9. Uh, so we're going to pick up with where we left off. We're going to start with verse 28. Uh, this is a story that many of you are probably familiar with, certainly one that your kids, if you've had kids in Sunday school, they've, draw, they've drawn pictures or colored this one probably before. Jesus on the Mount of Transfigurations. Uh, uh, now, it's always fun when kids draw this picture, isn't it? Uh, you're like, I don't think he was wearing black or something like that, you know, but uh, all the things that, you know, that, uh, that you've heard about this particular story, uh, I think that as we look at it again, there's not only what you've seen before, but far more. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 28, and we'll read verses 28 through 36. If you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. So if you don't have one, Raise your hand if you don't know how to find it. Just uh, look at the person next to you. If they seem to know what they're doing, just try and follow them. <laughs> Starting with verse 28, Luke chapter 9. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is like us, not knowing what he had said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased... Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Father, we ask again for your spirit to illuminate, to teach, to comfort, to convict, to open up our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine it? I mean, really think about it for just a second. Not that this is not a Bible story. This is a factual eyewitness account, right? This isn't a parable, although parables are incredibly important in understanding things. This happened just like you got up this morning happened, just like you drove here happened, but this happening is for all time, eternal. 
Amazing. You know, the, uh, the apostles, they had already seen Jesus do miracles. They had seen the miraculous. They had seen things that you and I have never seen before. They had seen Jesus walk on the water. They had seen him feed the 5,000 plus, which was more like, if you were with us in that study, more like 15,000 plus. They had seen him raise people from the dead, but they had never seen Jesus reveal this glory. They had never seen him reveal this heavenly glory. This is where he came from, right? This is a little bit of his throne. This is the majesty that someday we will see face to face and it will take literally our breath away if God didn't allow it to kill us. In this moment, these three men, Peter, James, and John, yeah, they they had already seen and, and believed that Jesus was sent from God, but to see his glory in this way wasn't something they could have anticipated, imagined, until it actually happened. I can't imagine to be there, though. What a privilege for those men to observe Jesus unveiling for just a moment. It kind of like, you know, Moses is there. We'll talk about Moses in a little bit. But Moses, remember, he wanted to see God's glory. And God said, I'll show you just a little bit of the train of my, just the rear side. Just be gonna hide, I'm going to hide you in the rocks and you'll see just a bit of my glory. Have you ever worked with one of those um, 5,000 to 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzles? Anyone ever done one of these? I've never bought one. I've never bought one, but my grandparents loved them. And when they retired to a place on the eastern shore of Maryland, we used to go and we used to go and visit. And they would always have one on this one table. They liked to play cards. They liked to listen to classical music. All these things I thought were boring as a kid. Uh, and they liked jigsaw puzzles. My grandmother loved like crossword puzzles, but jigsaw puzzles, five thousand, a thousand piece. They're all laying on that table and. I don't know how long it would take them to put it together because they would just take a little piece of time and come back at it again and do a little bit more and do a little bit more. They don't ever work with one of these things. It's not a 30-minute exercise, not when they're 500 to 1,000 pieces. It takes a lot of time. You're comparing pieces that look like they're the same shape, but they're actually not the same shape. You're looking at them again and again. This looks like the exact same color, but it's not the same color. It looks like it goes together. It looks like it'll fit, and it ends up not fitting. And, you get that st- and then you actually mess one up, and a little piece rips off the top because you were trying to jam it into <laughs> its spot. And it's, no matter how you try and jam it, it doesn't fit like that. Well, what if I try and lay it down? Well, that'll work. No, it's the wrong piece. You're not seeing it right. It looks like they fit, but they don't. You leave, you come back, you connect a few more pieces. And by the way, even if you've put it together before, it doesn't help you the next time. Not when it's a thousand pieces. You can't remember a thousand pieces like that. I was looking online at some, uh, some of them out there are over 10,000 pieces. So if you're not frustrated enough with a thousand, you can go for 10,000 pieces. But if you've ever worked with one, You know that if you're trying to put together this jigsaw puzzle, there's a picture of it on the box, isn't there? There's a picture of it on the box. 
and you keep referring back to the picture that's on the box. The picture shows what it actually all looks like, or what's supposed to all look like, when they all come together. And you'll keep looking at the picture, and you'll look at the pieces, and you'll look back at the picture, and you'll look back at the puzzle pieces. And I think this is what it was like for the disciples. And us in our own walk with Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the complete picture, isn't he? He is the absolute complete picture. The Bible is the complete word of God. There's nothing to be added whatsoever. God's complete word to us. And again and again, we look at the puzzle pieces in our own life and we keep going back to the clear picture and saying, how does this all fit? And sometimes the picture, sometimes you look at the picture and it's like a light bulb moment. You clearly see five pieces and they fit together. Other times you look at it and you still not get it. And I think in the lives of Jesus, uh, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus had shown them different times the picture of who he was and they would kind of get it. And then he shows them, I don't know, he himself kind of lays the puzzle out, and he doesn't need to sit there and kind of piece it out. He can just kind of lay them out. There on the mountain, he puts it all together for them and says, this is the complete picture of who you're going to see. He, he was talking about the kingdom of God. This is who I am. And yet they still can't seem to get it. It's almost like they're working at, on six puzzles at the same time. It says in the text here, it's about eight days, after about eight days, after these sayings. It's about a week later, about eight days, about a week later. This is a common phrase uh, used then. And after these sayings, well, this is a phrase, when it says that, after these sayings, what sayings? Well, that was what we covered last week in verses 18 through 27. Remember, Jesus was there and he said, who do men say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. Uh, we know elsewhere Jesus said, flesh and blood hath not revealed that to you, but the Spirit of God. You couldn't know that Jesus is the Christ unless God reveals it to you. He went on to talk to about, who do, who do men say that I am? And, those, and you know, all these different things. And Jesus said, you know, you're, you're the ones that know me for who I am, but I want you to know that the Son of Man is going to go and suffer many things, and he's going to be killed by the elders and by the chief priests, and he's going to be raised again on the third day. And you know how they took that? <sighs> right over their head. That was puzzle pieces that didn't seem to make any sense to them. And then he talked about taking up their cross and following him, and that they would have to deny themselves and take up their own cross. That should have been a clue that Jesus was going to go to the cross. That's how he would suffer. They would take up their own cross. Whoever desired to save his life uh, would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He goes on to say in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his what? In his glory and in his Father's glory and the holy angels. So he's explaining to them even then that you're going to someday see my glory. But before that, I have to suffer many things. And you will have to follow me in the way of the cross, which is what we looked at last week, if you were here with us in our study. 
that way of the cross. So Jesus, he had just, he had just dumped a lot of puzzle pieces, a 10,000-piece puzzle on them. They weren't seeing all the pictures. But he said, a few of you won't taste death until you have seen the kingdom of God, verse 27. And three of them are going to see, they were, not, they were not dead yet, three of them would see the kingdom of God come down upon this mountain ever so briefly. They would actually see a glimpse of the full complete picture. And it would help them later in their life in putting all those pieces together. See, the phrase, the previous, uh, after these saying, it connects this previous revelation, what he had just taught on, what he had just revealed about who he was, what was coming, the cross that was coming, the second coming of Christ, the glory of the kingdom was coming, all of these things he had just taught, and now he's going to take them up a mountain, and what he shows up on the mountain will add, it'll shed light back on what he has just talked about. And he's about to reveal those things just to the three that were the closest of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. You know, it's a reminder too to us that the previous work of God in our life, how many of you know that God has done other great things in the past in your life that were paramount to who you are today? The previous work that God has done in your life, God layers upon layers on that. It's not done. David, when he fought Goliath, he said, I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear. Therefore, I'm pretty sure that God can have me take this next step. And so the things that we've gone through in the past, the things that God has revealed to us, things that He's taught in the Word, things you've learned when you've been discipled by somebody, that have a layering effect. God actually builds upon them as we walk with the Lord. He continues to add. He continues to build upon what He's already taught us, what He's already revealed us. There's never throwaway teaching with Jesus. Amen? There's never throwaway teaching. It is a stepping stone to the next teaching. It's the stepping stone to the next lesson learned. It's line upon line, precept upon precept. The Gospels, as they each convey this story, uh, each of the writers uh, in the Synoptic Gospels anyway, they tell us this story about Jesus going up to this mountain. We don't exactly know which mountain it is. The Scriptures don't tell us. Uh, the mountain itself, and some people uh, have different conjectures. Is it Mount Tabor? Is it this mountain? Is it that mountain? Uh, many believe that it's Mount Hermon, which I also believe that it, I believe that Mount Hermon makes the most sense. I, I don't know for certain if it was Mount Hermon. Nobody knows for certain. When we were in Israel, um, we were right where Jesus was doing his teaching. Uh, in the previous verses, we know that uh, when he was telling, or he was asking the question, who do men say that I am? We know that he was at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, when we were in Israel, uh, when you're standing there at Caesarea Philippi, which had the different temples to different gods there, and you've got this huge rock behind it, and uh, that's where Jesus was doing that specific teaching. But he was in that region of Caesarea Philippi. If you continue to travel north, and uh, if about a week later he was meandering his way through different places in that region, if you continue to travel north on the border of Syria and Lebanon and Israel, they kind of triangulate around there, you get to Mount Hermon, which is much, much higher. Now, all of Israel, if you ever get a chance to go, and we want to take a whole church trip there, I'd love to take many of you there. Uh, you will be blessed uh, uh, part of you will want to stay there, I trust, trust me. Uh, even with all the things in the Middle East, Israel 
you feel the presence of God. It's something amazing. But when you go, uh, if you get a chance to go up in the north part, uh, even though Jerusalem sits at a high place, we've talked about this before, roughly 2,700 feet up, and of course the, the slopes up from the Mediterranean Sea, but as you move up the northern part of Israel, Mount Hermon rises all the way to 9,232 feet. Snow-capped. Uh, gets heavy, heavy snow uh, in the winter. Uh, and so Jesus, we don't know, again, if this is the exact place, but he takes them up a mountain. They, they journey over, uh, over a week, a little over a week. And uh, again, he had been in that particular area. He takes them up this mountain. But as he goes up this mountain, he takes them up. This is starting the clock for the final rundown of Jesus headed to Jerusalem. It says right here in the text uh, that um, in verse 31, he was about to accomplish what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem sits on another mountain. That's Mount Moriah down in, you've got to move all the way down into Judah. But Mount Hermon would be all the way to the northern tip. And so Jesus is going to begin his descent and then ascent because he has to come down and then through the valleys, and then back up into Jerusalem, he will have, you know, it, it's not a straight line. He actually meanders through different villages, and there's even a sojourn back up into Galilee. But Luke makes it clear to us, actually in the 51st verse, if you look at Luke 9, 51, look at Luke 9, 51, it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So twice here in the ninth chapter, it tells us that Jesus is now laser-focused. Now, don't, don't forget for a moment, Jesus was laser-focused on going to the cross and Jerusalem in heaven from the time he was born, but the clock starts ticking. You know, in football, it's that time of year, and I use a lot of football analogies anyway, I'm sorry. There's a two-minute warning, right? There's a two-minute warning. The game has already been important, it's already coming to an end, but the two-minute warning signifies now it's the final time. It's the final moments. And Jesus is saying, with this time at the top of whatever mountain this was, whether it was Mount Hermon or not, I will then descend down, and from now on, you guys will see me with my face pointed towards, like a flint, towards Jerusalem, because I'm going there willingly to be subdued, and killed and suffer. But before that, he's going to reveal something here that's going to be important for their ministry going forward. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, His Glory Unveiled. His Glory Unveiled. We'll look at three things briefly from the text this morning. This glory unveiled through prayer, through preparation, and through proclamation. Through prayer, through preparation, and through proclamation. Now, as Luke records for us, they went up, Jesus took them. They didn't say, let's go have a prayer meeting. He said, let's go have a prayer meeting. He took them up the mountain to pray. Now, D.L. Moody said this about prayer, if you're taking notes under this first bullet through prayer. D.L. Moody said, I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. There's a lot of great orators. There's a lot of great communicators. There's a lot of people that can really preach. 
But as I've mentioned before, Jim Symbolis has said, you know, guys, he goes, I've met with some of the, some of the really well-known pastors, and he said, I've had a few of them over the years reveal I don't have much of a prayer life. Now, that's not true for, I mean, there's many godly men that have, have a very deep and intimate prayer life. But there's also those that do not. And the Lord Jesus, if there's one thing he was teaching the apostles, it was to pray. Later, Jesus' half-brother James, who was not one of the apostles but would end up writing the book of James, he would be a man of such prayer he prayed for eight hours a day. That's why he was called Camel Knees. Literally, that's what they, uh, that was his nickname. Uh, we were talking about this Thursday night when, in, our, in our bottom row of men's. You know, not everyone is going to be called to pray eight hours a day. That, I believe that was a special calling for James. Uh, not everybody has that calling, but I can guarantee you everyone's called to pray more than eight minutes a day. And Whatever it is, God will reveal, but I know that he wants to lead us deeper into prayer. These men had witnessed Jesus praying on numerous occasions. Remember when he was baptized by John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, uh, went there at the Jordan River. What was Jesus doing just before that? He was in prayer. Remember the calling of the twelve, Luke chapter 6, the calling of the twelve, what was Jesus doing? He went out all night to what? Pray. Then he called the twelve. Uh, what about um, his teaching What we saw just last week? He was praying. He was praying when they come upon him, and he says, who do men say that I am? That teaching came directly out of a time of prayer. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is he doing just before the cross? Praying. What is he doing here before they see him glorified? Praying. Now, if Jesus, before every great work of God, in his ministry is praying, we will never see a great work of God in our own life apart from prayer. There's not a substitute. There's not a shortcut. There's not a, well, I don't really need to pray. Instead, I'll do this. All, of these, all the things that we did this morning are important. Praising the Lord in song all through the Scriptures. Read the Psalms. It's all about singing the Lord. Very important. It is Worship through song goes with prayer, but it's not a substitute for prayer. But they do go hand in hand. And by the way, you can pray through singing as well. Some of you that in your own prayer time, you pray to the Lord through singing. That's good. There is, there's liberty for those kind of things. But prayer has to be set aside in our life. And Jesus is teaching the disciples to go away alone into prayer. Not just corporate prayer, which is important, but also that we have that intimate time with the Lord. I want to look at three things, though, that we see uh, about Jesus taking them away to pray. Three things that I want you to write down. The first one, this is intentional. And our prayer life has to be intentional. We have to make time for it. We have to really say, I'm going to set uh, that time. It's a good thing. Now, some, it's a good, it's a great thing that God understands all of our weaknesses. Not everyone is, we, we've got people here that uh, aren't able to get on their knees because of health conditions. There's people that right now will never be able to walk again, they're laying on their back. D.L. Moody said he was prayed from America over to England by a young woman there in London who couldn't get out of bed. So it's not a requirement to be on her knees. However, we see a lot in scripture, people that can get on their knees do get on their knees. Even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple there, dropped down to his knees. If men, I'll speak to the men, men and dads, if you have not been on your knees in a while, 
and your knees are fine, get down on them. If there's nothing wrong with your knees, get down on them. Why? Because it's a symbol of humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's laying prostrate before the Lord. Jesus himself, we see that he would be this, in this position of down before the Father. But it, this intentionality, first one uh, that we see, Jesus leads them up the mountain to pray. He already knows why they're going up the mountain. We're going first to pray. That's intentional. Zechariah 8.21, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. And I love this last part. And he says, I myself will go. I myself will go. Let us all go, but even if no one else goes, you intentionally say, but I will go. I will pray. You know, God will ask us to pray when we don't really feel like it, which is a lot of times, which is almost all the time. Right? Most of the time. Almost every time where I say, I'm going to go pray, I've got 15 other things I'm thinking that I could do, and a lot of them are fairly important. How about you? And the Lord says, you give me that, I'll make your 15 list five. Well, I've messed up on this so many times. Where I don't do it, my 15 list becomes 50. And God says, you don't understand my math yet. You continue to think the 24-hour clock is run by you when I own time and space. You get on your knees first, make it intentional, I'll take care of the other stuff. E.M. Bounds said this, he said, what the church needs today is not better machinery, not new organizations or more methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men of might in prayer. That's what the church needs. That's what the church lacks. That's what revival genuinely brings. You know, it was um, Andrew Murray. He had been praying for years for revival when he was there in South Africa. He actually uh, experienced the same revival that began in New York City in 1857 as it went around the world. But he'd been praying for years for revival. And men that he was working with, he could not find a single man, not one single man, to come and join the ministry full time. But when revival came in one month, he had over like, it was like 25 or 26 men joined the ministry in one month. Why? Because prayer brought the actual outpouring of the Lord. That's it. There's no substitute. Number two, first it's intentional. Jesus intentionally takes them. They were going to the mountain to pray. And he, as he prayed, we see that in verse 32, and Peter and those who were with him, they became heavy and they fell asleep. This is Peter, James, and John at the prayer meeting. <laughs> we're in good company, aren't we? This isn't the only time they do this, by the way. They do this again in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus takes them to pray. They bail sooner than he does, which would be expected. He is perfect. They are not. And so they fall asleep. Prayer takes time, doesn't it? It takes labor. It takes diligence, and it takes perseverance. Now, you have to ask God for those things, but he will give them to you. Uh, we were talking about this again on Thursday night. I love F.B. Meyer's uh, quote, are you willing to be made willing? Right? So if God says, all right, I want you to pray. I'm not really willing. God says, are you willing to be made willing? Start praying that way. And he will. He'll all of a sudden change your will. Right? 
that your will would become one with his will. But it takes time. It takes labor. Uh, it takes some diligence. You will feel like falling asleep, metaphorically, like spiritually, and literally at times. But the disciples, they grow weary. They fall asleep. And while they fall asleep, Jesus is being transformed. And at first, they don't know it because they're asleep. But if we spend that time if we give that time, Ephesians 6.18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Paul's like, I urge you, invest in that prayer. Take time. You know, for people that don't have a prayer life, uh, I agree with my good friend, uh, one of my mentors in the faith, Sam Nadler. For people that don't have a prayer life, start with five minutes. Five minutes is five minutes more than zero minutes. Let five minutes grow to 10 minutes. Let 10 minutes grow to 15. Now, where it stops, that's the Lord will take you, but you'll end up having a prayer life that actually doesn't end when you get up off your knees. You actually pray through the day. You actually become like a George Mueller. He prayed all the time. He said, I can't remember a time of the day that I'm not praying. He became such a prayer warrior. But he also had that dedicated time of prayer. Jesus, it was early in the morning, whether it's at night for you, I don't know, driving to work, finding those times, but making those times, not just finding them, saying, Lord, show me the one areas you want me to invest and carve it out and watch God do things in your life. You start to get on your knees. By the way, how many of you have ever done this? You make the time to pray. You were only going to pray for this stuff. Actually, you got on your knees and you prayed for this stuff. This will never show up on audio, by the way. I just did my hands. So anyway, that, uh, you get on your knees and you say, I'm going to get on my knees, Lord. I just want to pray for my family, for this situation, for this situation. And the Lord, while you're there, says, hey, pray about this one too. Pray about this one as well. Pray about this one as well. And then here's the great, you think about something you haven't thought of in weeks. Guess what? You didn't think of it the Holy Spirit, because you labored and gave the time to do it. It's, it's like everything else. If you ever decide, I'm going to clean such and so part of the house, you get on a roll. And you all of a sudden say, I did so much, i, I got to take the next room too. And the Lord does that in our prayer life. But it has to be intentional. You have to labor there. The third thing, it's transformational. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. Many a times you'll go into prayer in a bad mood. Bad attitude? Somebody's hurt your feelings. It's probably your spouse. Again. Somebody didn't keep a promise. They're not perfect like you and me. And the Lord will alter our attitude in prayer. We become changed. We become softer. All of a sudden, we care about souls again because we were in prayer. All of a sudden, our TV show doesn't matter as much at that moment. All of a sudden, all these things that seemed important 15 minutes earlier, it's amazing how quickly they can fade away. And all of a sudden, things that, that seem like, oh, I'm not going to be able to figure out how to even figure my time out this week, God puts it all in order when we pray. He transforms us. Jesus well, his transformation here is just revealing who he actually is. 
the transformation he does for us is makes us like him. Jesus didn't need to be transformed. He's doing this for their benefit. He already is the God of glory. Amen? He already is. He, know, he doesn't need men to know one way or the other that he is who he says he is. But his desire is that they be changed. So he reveals some of his glory. It's a glistening that it says here. This word is only used one time in the entire New Testament, this particular word. Um, exostrapto. Exostrapto in the, Greece, in the Greek, it means, not Greece, Greek, uh, it means gleaming or shining or emitting of light, uh, send forth of lightning. You ever seen how fla a flash of lightning, how bright it is? Take a midnight sky and just light it up. Jesus shows his light, not all of his light. He could have blinded them, but he begins to unveil some of his glory, transforming before them. And by the way, they begin to wake up. God in his grace, even though they had fallen asleep, they wake up. They had gone, and by the way, it's a really good thing to fall asleep praying and to wake up seeing Jesus, isn't it? To fall asleep praying. You know, even as you hit the pillow, just say a few words to the Lord, and uh, many times you'll wake up with a song, things like that in the morning. Uh, when they came to, Jesus is being transformed in their presence. He hadn't stopped praying. They had, but yet in his grace, they begin to see his glory. He's being revealed. Uh, I actually think there are some scholars that have, uh, that have studied this and really think that uh, most, most times when people think of the Mount of Transfiguration, they think of a daytime setting. Um, it could have been, but it actually, if you kind of look at this in parallel, uh, to the other time when the disciples will fall asleep. Uh, it was in the wee hours of the morning there uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus going from that mountain down to the mountain in Jerusalem, it's very possible, again we don't know, it's very possible that this all was a situation of, again Jesus praying through the night or in the night and in the early morning as the sun is rising his glory is being revealed. We don't know one way or the other but it would make sense as they were waking up the sun is shining, the sun, and he's actually showing forth a little bit ahead of time what he's going to do at the resurrection. Let's look at the next thing through preparation, through preparation. Now, it says in verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him. So these guys, Peter, James, and John, they wake up, they rub their eyes. I'm sure Peter was the first one to elbow the other two. Wake up. Jesus is shining, and his robe has just changed colors. It's now shining bright white. And then they see two men talking with him. And then instantaneously, they seem to know exactly who they are. Now, when you get in the presence of God, the Bible tells us in heaven, we'll know even as we are known. They're actually transported as heaven comes down. They actually are given some of the elements of what heaven will be like, they instantaneously know that's Moses and that's Elijah. There was no pictures of Moses and Elijah. This was a, this was a time where you, know, they, you had the writings, but you didn't have images like today. We know what George Washington looked like to some degree and these things, but they immediately knew Moses and Elijah are talking to the Lord. Moses, of course, um, 
was given the law. Elijah, a great prophet. Jesus would talk often about his written in the law and the prophets. These two men representing the law and the prophets. Uh, we know from Hebrews chapter 1, uh, I'll read from it, uh, over in Hebrews 1, we've looked at this a couple of times, but Jesus uh, is the revelation of all that the law and the prophets would ever uh, have said before. God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things. And I love verse 3, we see some of it here. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, that Jesus Himself the brightness of the glory of God is now revealing himself not through Moses and Elijah, but he's revealing himself with them at his side. The prior words that were written, the Pentateuch, uh, the law, Genesis through Leviticus, and all through the Tanakh, all the way to the end of Malachi, all the law and the prophets, they testified of Christ. And all of them pointed to him. And now you have Moses and Elijah both standing there with the Lord. These two great men that did great things for God. Both had wrought miracles. Both spent time at Mount Sinai. Both had been miraculous. Even their, even their death, Elijah caught up in a chariot. Moses, his body, uh, all of a sudden God hid it in a place that nobody knew where it was. I mean, both of them, uh, God had a very special calling on both their lives. But here, they have the most special calling that they had ever done at any point in their earthly ministry. They come down from heaven, and what are they doing? It says in verse 31, and Jesus who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What a picture. Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the great prophet, and what are they doing? They're ministering to Jesus knowing that he's about to die. That's the greatest work that Moses and Elijah, not parting the Red Sea, not calling fire down out of heaven, they were there. God gave them the special privilege. You know, Moses was told he wouldn't enter the promised land. But here he is with the promised one. He wouldn't get to go in with the children of Israel. But God says, you know what? In my grace... I got a better task for you. You and Elijah will prepare my son and just talk to him. Just be there with him. You know, people need, now Jesus is another, this is another representation for us. Jesus does not really need Moses and Elijah to accomplish anything. Amen? But it teaches us that we need to be there with people. There's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn. It's time to laugh. Ecclesiastes tells us these things. And they were there to minister. It was a picture that when God says, my son's about to endure great things, that he sent these two men to be alongside him. And that you and I need to be alongside others when God is, they're going through something difficult. They're going through something tough. You are called to stand beside them the same way. See, the men and women that God really uses are there for you in your darkest hours, not just the easy times. And even though Jesus is glorifying himself, they're not talking about his glory, they're talking about his death. Isn't that amazing? He's glorifying himself, and they're talking about his death, which hasn't happened yet. 
which the apostles still don't even get. They still don't even know what he's talking about because Luke tells us later they understood not these things. The puzzle pieces still aren't fitting together for them. See, Jesus, he sees the cross while they see him being glorified. But both are important. See, Jesus has to stay focused on the cross because without the cross, you and I can't live. But they need to know that Jesus is who he says he is. They need to know that he really is Emmanuel. What is God with us? Not just God, oh, that's, uh, yeah, you, you came from God. No, he's revealing that he is one with the Father. He has the same glory as the Father, that he's the glory of the living God among the men. Peter would later write this in 2 Peter 1.16. Peter says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, we saw it firsthand. We saw his glory. We know that Jesus was not just a good man, good teacher. He was God, and he revealed himself on a mountain. He could have incinerated the mountain with his glory. Again, Jesus, no doubt, is showing some of his glory but it's not even the full measure. Turn with me real quickly to Revelation chapter 1. I kind of think of it like, any of you have those light bulbs that you can click it once and it's this bright? You click it another time, it gets a little brighter. You click it the third time, it gets really bright. Jesus can reveal enough glory to teach the lesson he's trying to teach, but he could also real, real, reveal enough glory to knock you off your feet. He could also reveal enough glory to actually, literally, the breath would escape from your body. Remember, without even, without even any... It doesn't seem like such a, a, an amazing moment, but Jesus just getting up prayer. Remember the, the soldiers, they come to take him, and he turns and speaks to them, and they all fall backwards. His power. Now, John, you've got to remember, who was on the mountain with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. John had seen Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus shine with this brightness. He saw him transformed. He saw his face glisten. He saw the, the garment change. But John had no comprehension of Jesus can actually turn the light bulb brighter than that. And I suspect even brighter than John says, sees even here, well, not only suspect, I guarantee even more than John sees in Revelation chapter 1. Look with me in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 12, Revelation 1, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as if referred in the fire, furnace, his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and the countenance was like the sun shining in its full strength. You ever try to look at the sun shining in its full strength? And when I saw him, this is John's response, I fell at his feet as dead. 
Yeah, John should have just said, hey, it's you again, Jesus. Right? We go way back. Remember me on the Mount of Transfiguration? I've seen this before. And Jesus said, you've not seen the light bulb this bright. And I've dimmed it so you would not be a dead man. And he puts his hand on him and raises him back up. Jesus wants us as believers to understand, you must worship his glory. There was a t-shirt a few years ago, oh, I hated it. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. You know, if you own that shirt, I'm sorry. That is not the living Christ. That is not the God of glory. He is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But he's not our equal. Do we understand that? John was his good friend, but not his equal. Peter and James, they were with him, but they were not his equal. Jesus said, I am God, you are called by God. And we find here that Moses and Elijah aren't his equal either, even though they were great men of God. They had done great things. And this preparation that Jesus is preparing for the cross, but he's preparing them to know, I am God, I am to be worshipped, There is no other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is what? One. I'm the one. He is the one. One like the Son of Man. The one, capital O-N-E. The one. And the Lord is preparing them that no matter what comes, don't ever forget that you keep your eyes on me. And God even uses in this last thing, we, look at the, uh, we move from preparation to the proclamation. They're all connected, the prayer, the preparation, and then God speaking on behalf of his son. God uses all of these things that someday the disciples would re- look back and remember all that the Lord had taught them. They would remember that he had to go to the cross. They would remember that they must be men of prayer. They would remember that Jesus has no equal, that they're to worship him as the Father to bow down before him, that all the things that God had done with the law and the prophets were preparation for the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is called, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything written was not to exalt Moses. Everything written was not to exalt Elijah. Everything written was not to exalt anyone but the Lord Jesus. We even see this in the book of Revelation, that only the lamb will be exalted, the elders will fall down, the angels will fall down, Everyone will fall down at the feet of Jesus as God is letting these men know you're going to soon write epistles. You're going to soon write letters. But what you're going to write is you're going to exalt my son. Because for a moment, in this last section, we'll look at the proclamation coming to a close here. Peter is now fully awake, which is sometimes a dangerous thing (laughs) for all of us because we think we know a lot. I have learned, and I continue to learn, God has shown me a lot in my life. I've learned a lot in my life about the scriptures, about to walk with the Lord. And as much as I've learned, I've learned I still don't know that much. That's true of all of us. Yes, God's shown us a lot. He's taken us from Goshen 
to the promised land, if you're, if you're walking in the Spirit. And, and through all that, you've seen how much you've learned, and then the older the walk of the saint, the more they say, and I, I know how little I now actually know compared to the measure of his glory. Because Peter had learned a lot. Peter had seen a lot. Peter had done, how many of you have, Peter actually walked on water. That's amazing. He's the only person that I know of recorded history that could tell you what it feels like to walk across a swimming pool. I've always wanted to try that. That looks really cool. And yet, for all that he had been taught, he had a lot to learn. And we still have a lot to learn. Our ideas are not always good ones. Even when they're from good intentions, they have to come through prayer, not out of a deep sleep. They have to come through prayer. They have to have the leading of the Holy Spirit. So Peter has a great idea. Master, it's good for us to be here. That's true. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Sounds like a great plan. Be careful that our plans are not just our plans. They need to be God's plans, right? We can build plans that actually have a verse as a pretext. A lot of people do this. Oh, God, God said this, and so I'm going to, you know, time will tell. But Peter has a bright idea, but it's not the Lord's will. It's not what God wants. He wants to build these things for each of these men, but the Lord says, I didn't bring Moses and Elijah down for you to worship them. Be careful. A lot of people will still exalt Jesus while exalting themselves. True, isn't it? Yeah, they'll, they'll preach the cross. They'll preach Christ. They'll exalt Christ, but they're also exalting themselves. Paul said, I came to you and I really did everything I could to strip away anything that would exalt me. And so the Lord comes in this cloud in verse 34. And a cloud comes and overshadows them. Interesting, we see this cloud. Um, there was cloud involved with both Elijah's ministry and there was a cloud involved with Moses' ministry. In both cases, it's the cloud of the Lord. Uh, we know that uh, Moses, uh, the Lord had the cloud by day, the fire by night. God spoke through the cloud uh, when the giving of the law there in Exodus chapter, uh, um, or we spoke in uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, also in Exodus 14. We know that God speaks in the cloud. The cloud was really symbolic of Israel, of the presence of God. Elijah, when there was no rain on the land, remember he finally sees the little cloud and it becomes finally rain upon the land and God pouring out uh, his grace and refreshing. But this cloud speaks and it is the Father himself speaking from the cloud about his son. And a voice comes out of the cloud. When Peter was in this confused moment, I think God wants us to build a tabernacle to Moses and Elijah. And God says, uh-uh. This is my beloved son. Hear him, and your Bible should be an exclamation point. The only one that we follow is Christ. It's only him. God says he's the only one that you will hear. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor everlasting power. Amen. God says, this is my son. Hear him only. 
don't be misled. Other men might actually be used. They might say some great things, but follow my son only. Worship him. Listen to him. But I love it says, hear him. You know, the, the disciples had to say, what do you, we've been hearing him. We've listened to him all the time. No matter how much you've heard the Lord, God is still saying to every one of us, hear him more. Hear him more. Hear him at a deeper heart level. Draw nearer. Hear him more. Because you hear so many other voices, and I hear so many other voices that drown out the voice of the Lord. Amen? It's the radio. It's the smartphone. It's the TV. It's this. It's that. There's all these things that drown out the voice of the Lord. You hear him clearly here because it's quiet right now. God says, you're going to need to block out all the distractions to hear him because there's going to be a world around you. When you come off this mountain, it's easy when you're up on the second floor of Calvary Chapel, Richmond, over the parking lot. When you come down, you're still going to have to hear him. And you're going to have to block these other things out. Hear the voice of the Lord. Jesus, uh, God saying, hear my son. But when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. Uh, Jesus was found alone. They kept quiet. They would tell this later. This would have a profound impact upon them, but they would tell it later. And Peter would actually refer back uh, to these things, as I mentioned in 2 uh, Peter. He also says in 2, Timoth uh, 2 Peter 1.17, uh, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Now we know he spoke over his son at the baptism there at the Jordan River, and he speaks of him here, but Peter would remember specifically, I know that the Father has made it clear, stay with our eyes on the Son. Just as Jesus' eyes were focused on what? The cross. Our eyes are focused on the Son that went to the cross. Jesus was laser-focused on the cross. We are to be laser-focused on the Son of God, our ears tuned to His voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Turn with me as we close in the last, just want to hear what His voice has to say. Revelation chapter 22, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we understand His glory, we close with Jesus' own testimony of Himself. Now Jesus finishes this book with His own words. And the Lord wants us to know that he's glorified, he's gone to Jerusalem, he's accomplished everything that he set out, everything that he set out uh, in his teaching that we looked at last week, the uh, heart set on Jerusalem, they're talking to Elijah and Moses. But Jesus has some words for us in 2014 that he never wants us to forget. They're the closing words of the entire scriptures. And this is what he says, Revelation 22, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He goes on to say in verse 20, drop down to verse 20. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. That's what Jesus is saying. 
God says, this is my son, hear him. Now, if God says, hear his son, and these are the last words that Jesus says in the entire scriptures, what does God want us to know that his son is saying? I'm coming back. Just like I descended that mountain, and I did not miss the mark of Jerusalem, I hit it on the exact Passover week, on the exact day, I will come back the same exact way, and you guys continue to worship me until I return, continue to tell other people these things, and give me glory. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, this morning in your word. Lord, we pray that you would tune our ears to hear your voice, that we would see your unveiled glory in our prayer life as you prepare us day after day and disciple us and teach us. Lord, as much as we've learned that you would teach us far more, we come to the full measure of Christ that you have desired for each of us, that we would grow, that we would be useful in your hand that we would not forget that you're returning soon, that these words were not mere words, but they were your testimony and your encouragement to keep us centered on you until you return. Let us not get distracted with the cares of this world, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you